boogie all day. I stole a plastic snowman, put it out in your front yard, and dressed it up like Captain Kirk without a reason. But nobody laughed at all, cause everyone's at the mall. Everyone's buying gifts for who they love, but not for me. Cause I have been a bad boy. Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. I get that you can only have winter if you also have summer. I get the physical reasons, even the cosmic symmetry, the yin-yang of natural cycles and all that crap, but I really wish summer would just stop being. That's one reason I've never really done much for Christmas in July. I'd rather stay asleep or unconscious or drunk, just anything so I'm not trying to move or expend even the smallest effort, which results in soggy shorts and the sign of the cross and sweat in the middle of my t-shirts. I feel bad for my sons, by the way, because they inherited my sweatiness. The good thing is they're both athletic, though, quite unlike their father, so they have an excuse. I sweat when I'm lying down in a room with barely measurable humidity in the air. But I digress. You didn't click on this to hear about my sweat. I hope. I don't know exactly what you're expecting, but I'm sure it wasn't that. So here we are in July, and I'm putting out a podcast because I love Christmas. And also because I was so busy this year that I never finished putting together the annual ghost story. I feel particularly bad about that because I had a dozen volunteers who so generously recorded their parts and sent them in and waited and waited and waited some more until they forgot about it. And I know they forgot because when I told one of them I was finally finishing, he laughed and said that, yep, he'd forgotten. So I thought we could all use a bit of light pretend horror this year to help distract us from all the too real horror of the heat and news and your neighbors and failing faith in our ideals and nations and fellow humans. As a side note, but I read a piece recently about how horror fiction is growing in popularity, but actually kind of is comfort reading. A lot of people say they love escaping into traditional kinds of horror stories because the monsters and baddies there are like concrete, obviously evil. You can actually fight them and have a semi-happy ending. It's a more modern take on the whole fantasy is escapist because it clarifies the good and evil thing, but now with an added dose of malaise about real world evil. I think I buy that. I think it's always been kind of true, but everyone always thinks that now is worse than things were. So, yeah. What does any of this have to do with Christmas, though? Nothing. Yet. So let's circle back around. Victorians like ghost stories at Christmas. I like Christmas. I like ghost stories. I'm alive now and not 150 years ago. So let's do a ghost story on a Christmas podcast. And there now we have our segue. But I'm apparently all about interrupting my own train of thought today. So why not one more time? I just put up the announcement of the next Weird Christmas Flash Fiction Contest. This will be the fifth year in a row we've done it. I think that's pretty amazing. And this year is mostly the same as last year. You can submit short pieces of no more than 350 words all about Christmas and something strange. It can be funny, strange, disturbing, strange, strangely strange. Just surprise me. I'm doing three categories again. First is a stocking stuffer of whatever you can think of. Let your mind run to its worst, most debauched, creative place and give it space to vomit. If you'd rather start from an image, then there's a category for basing a story on one of the cards I posted. And for that one, you can check on any social media thing I have, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, whatever. And when you submit a story for that category, just put a link to the card. Then last, you can write a story about a Christmas cryptid. Cryptids do seem to be all the rage now, just weird made-up animals, chupacabras, mothmen, but make up your own. Maybe when this is all said and done, you'll have invented the next Krampus or Yule Cat, and you will be a Christmas celebrity. 
Each category will have a winner with a $50 prize and then one overall prize for $75. Then I usually choose about a dozen honorable mentions. They'll get published on the site, read on the show, and get paid $5. Now, most people tell me not to bother with the $5, but I will always offer that for quote-unquote professional reasons because I know a lot of folk trying to make a living off of writing need to boost their, their publication record to get into writing associations. And $5 for this amount of words will get it considered as a semi-pro sale under most group standards. The winners count as folk publications, though, and there's more about all that stuff on the site if you care. So check out weirdchristmas.com for all the specific information. You've got until November 2nd. And I truly hope everybody listening to this gives it a shot. The winners before have been everything from pro writers with long lists of books to folk who'd never submitted a story before. So please consider it and please go listen to the old contest shows too. Okay. So our ghost story this year, it's called A Strange Christmas Game by Charlotte Riddell. Now it was published as written by J.H. Riddell. So that's part of the backstory here. I realized that I've never done a story by a woman, so I thought I'd do one now. First of all, to flush out anyone who'll bitch and moan about me being too PC or caring about, you know, looking for a variety of kinds of stories and whatnot. But if it bugs you that I intentionally tried to make at least one what seventh of the stories we read have some gender diversity, then bye. But also, a lot of the ghost stories were in fact written by women back then, even if they sometimes hid their gender under male or vague pseudonyms. But Riddle, or Riddell, we're not really sure, she wrote a bunch of weird ghost and semi-horror stories. The one we're going to read this time honestly isn't my favorite story that I've read of hers, but it's the best ghost story that at least touches on Christmas that I could find from her. I'm willing to bet that not a single person listening to this has ever heard of her before. Maybe, Benito? Maybe? You may have heard of her, though, if you hang out in weird or horror fiction circles, because she and other women writers from the period are starting to get back into print. First place I'd recommend, check out this excellent collection called Weird Women, edited by Lisa Morton, the Halloween queen we spoke to a couple years ago. And one of Riddle's stories is in there, along with a lot of names you probably never heard of, but you should. And there's another collection that comes out in a couple weeks in August, this time all about Riddell. It's called A Little Purple Book of Sharp Wit, and it's edited by Megan Arcuri. And Megan Arcuri was kind enough to talk to me to let us know a little bit about Riddell and the book, because frankly, I didn't know much about her at all beyond the stories that I'd read. Um, Arcuri herself knows her stuff. She's had stories published all over the place, was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award, which is a big deal in horror circles, if you don't know, and is vice president of the Horror Writers Association of America. And since her collection is the newest collection of Riddell's stories to come out, I think that qualifies her as an expert. So I asked her just to start by letting us know a little bit about Charlotte Riddell before we read the story. Yeah, so maybe we could just talk first about about her. So who was Charlotte Riddell? Uh, and is it Riddle or Riddell? Do you know? I have always said Riddell, but to be honest, it, I've only ever read it. I, Yeah, and I was thinking when I contacted Lisa, because I've talked to Lisa about her a couple times, including when we chatted about this podcast. I, I haven't spoken. We've only communicated through email, so I've never heard yeah. her say it either. So I, I've always said Riddell, but I, it could be Riddell. She's Irish. Oh, well, Irish, that could be more Riddle. I don't that, know if that, that helps, that. though. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll have to. I've got a buddy who's Irish. I'll ask him if he knows other other names that that fit that pattern. I'll see. We'll I'll look and see. That'll be fun to find out. Um, but yeah, maybe just a little bit about her. Who was she? Because I would imagine most people have not heard of her. 
Yes, and it's a shame that most people haven't heard of her because she is she is I'm I'm biased, but I think she's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, to start, she was born Charlotte Cowan, and she was born September 30, 1832, in Ireland. Um, her father was a high sheriff in the county in which they lived, but he died when she was about 19. And a few years after that, she and her mother moved to London, basically to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, Charlotte wrote, and she wrote a lot. Um, At first, she used multiple pseudonyms, including R.V. Sparling, Rainey Hawthorne and F.G. Trafford, mm. um, which With I think the initials, right? Right. You know, and then a, a and Rainey is kind of vague, right? So yeah. it's so obviously that was an attempt to <laughs> hide the fact that she was a woman so mm-hmm. she could sell her work and make more money. Um, and then in 1857, she married Joseph Riddell or Riddle, which hopefully we'll figure out later the <laughs> proper way to say it. Um, and he was a civil civil engineer. But unfortunately, he had a poor head for business and he incurred many debts. Mm. And so, you know, her writing, you know, went from supporting her and her mother to supporting her and her husband. And she even had to um, pay his debts after he died. There were so many of them. So she had to keep going. Um, But eventually she did start using her married name, Mrs. J.H. Riddell, when she was writing. Mm -hmm. Um, During her lifetime, she penned over 50 novels, novellas, and short stories. She was the part owner and editor of St. James Magazine, which was a literary journal. Oh, wow. Um, Okay. Yeah, and she she edited some other other magazines. Uh, She got uh, her nickname from from a lot of her contemporaries was the novelist of the city, and she was praised by the likes of M.R. James. Oh, wow. Yeah. She was also the first writer to receive a pension from the Society of Authors. And in 1906, she died of cancer. Um, Although a lot of her novels focused on the financial and business world of London and having a husband who was a civil engineer, she was able to get kind of a, you know, you know, firsthand view of what that looked like. And so her novels did focus on a lot of those those issues. But many of her novellas and short stories tended toward the supernatural, often including ghosts and banshees and other malevolent and frankly, not so malevolent forces. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's what I had seen doing my little research was that she did some ghost stories, but she wasn't like M.R. James, where everything was primarily this sort of, you know, if he wasn't doing biblical scholarship, he was writing ghost stories. (laughs) And so but. For her, that split is really interesting between that kind of finance realist novel of 19th century and then to go do these sort of shorter things. Right. And even among the shorter things, it wasn't. Oh, I mean, they were ghost like, but but there was there's Mm -hmm. one that's like it it has a banshee and it's great. I mean, it's great. And And sometimes the ghosts are you know, malevolent and sometimes they're wrong and sometimes it's scary in the beginning and you're not sure what's going to happen. And sometimes it's, you can tell from the beginning that it's, this is not, you know, this is more of a, a tame ghost and it's really yeah. ends up being more of a mystery and as opposed to like a ghost horror story like that. Yeah. I couldn't tell if she did sort of that Gothic tradition of, you know, making things seem scary, but then there's an explanation at the end. It seemed like the ones that I've read, at least they're straight ghosts. Like they really are supernatural things that are scary and happen. 
Same. Um, yes, that's what I noticed as well. That that they they were <laughs> they were ghosts. They were there wasn't any sort of real world explanation for them. They were yeah. they were wronged in life, and whoever was kind of interacting with them was the one who had to figure out how they were wronged and fix it somehow. Gotcha. But it also seems like, if I'm right, that a lot of writers would do that. That that this sort of ghost story, especially things to be published around Christmas time, that was just something that working writers did. If, if I'm right, that it's sort of, that's, that's a way to make money. Those are popular at Christmas time. And so we put those out and everybody's clamoring for one and it's, it's a great thing to do. So you have writers, a lot of writers who will write sort of Christmas ghost stories. She seemed to have written more, she had more fun with it. It wasn't just like the token thing to do to make a quick buck. At least that's what it seems like. It seems like that to me too. I mean, this is, of, of all the ones I read this is the only one I can recall. I could be wrong, but it's only the one I can recall that even kind of remotely touches on Christmas. I think a mm. lot of them are just, they happen whenever. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah, they, they, they are very fun. That's, that's the thing about her that I, I like so much is that it, it's, it's actually a fun read. It's not, yeah. you're not struggling to get through it. It's, no, no, good. that's actually a side note, but that's one thing. The, the more I've gotten into this, the more, yeah, how very few of the Christmas ghost stories actually happen at Christmas or touch on Christmas at all. Like most Victorian ghost stories, they're just ghost stories. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's just read them around the fire around Christmas time. And that's fun. Which when I first started doing that, American listeners were like, this is dumb. Why Why do I just want to listen to a ghost story? <laughs> I'm like, no, that's the tradition. Ooh, it's fun. Why not? So, so it's, hard, it's hard to go find ones that actually mention Christmas. To, to it's, true. Yeah. it's true. It's yeah. true. Um, and you know, to that, that's about all I have on her. Um, I, I mean, I, sh I feel like I should point out that I am not a Charlotte Riddell scholar. Like I, I'm not a PhD in, in Victorian literature or anything like that. Um, I, f I found her via this project I was working on, which I can talk more about later. Yeah. Um, but so when I was doing the research, I was kind of, I was looking online and really the stuff that I mentioned there, she's mentioned in a number of websites, but mm -hmm they say the same thing. They say the yeah. same, basically five sentences about her. And I was able to kind of glom together all these like little facts, but it's, <laughs> it's very hard to find anything more than what I, um, you know, I just kind of talked about with her. Yeah. So she, yeah. which is unfortunate again, cause she's, a, I, I think she's a great writer. I think she deserves to be a little more, have her time in the spotlight, but yeah. Yeah. So yeah, say a little bit about the project that you're working on, because it does sound, Lisa told me just a little bit, but yeah, what what are you working on that introduced you to her? Um, well, it's funny because Lisa's part, has a part in that project as well. Um, Tom Monteleone of Borderlands Press often does these series called the Little Book Series. Mm -hmm. And he's done, I think, three so far. And they're, you know, they have, he has, I don't know, anywhere from 10 to 12 authors in these series. Some of, some of the past books include something like um, a little gold book of protector tales by David Morrell or a little bronze book of cautionary tales by Jonathan Mayberry. And so there are these small books and they, they have their, their hardcover. They have um, they're, they're the color that they they, they said. So like, I think, what did I say that uh, Jonathan Mayberry's was bronze. So the color, color of the book is bronze. Oh, gotcha. And so, but for this series, he wanted to do one about past masters of the horror genre who were also in the public domain. And so he emailed a number of us, including Lisa Morton, 
and he said, you know, he told us what he was doing and he asked us if we wanted to edit a small um, collection of certain authors in this in this period. And he mentioned Lovecraft and M.R. James, Robert Chambers, Poe, Ambrose Bierce, all these all these people. And I'm reading the list and I, th- I was like, wow, this is a great opportunity and this is really cool. Um, but I said, oh, there aren't any women on this list. Mm-hmm. And I had just read a book called Monster She Wrote by Lisa Kroger and Melanie Anderson. Oh, and it's I've a, heard of that. I haven't read it, but I've seen it. I've seen awesome. It. It's so good. I can't recommend it highly enough. It, it, it talks about you know, the women who have written horror, you know, starting with like, you know, um, Anne Radcliffe and before going all the way to, you know, present day authors. And, and I had just read it. So it was on my mind and I was like, wow, these are all, you know, great authors. Some of them I'd read and some of them I had, and I was like, but it would be really cool to have a woman in there. So I emailed Tom and I'm, I'm friendly with Tom. And I was like, look, I don't know if you have a certain thing in mind, but can, is it all right if I, pick a woman. And he said, absolutely. This just let me know which one you want to do. And so I went back to the monster she wrote book and I looked for certain people and I, I whittled it down to Edith Wharton because mm-hmm. I figured, oh, she's got name recognition. So she yeah. could, that would be a good one. Um, Elizabeth Gaskell, who I, she had actually been the subject of my 400 level English class my senior year. So I oh, was cool. like, oh, she wrote ghost stories. That's cool. Cause we didn't read any of her ghost stories. And then Charlotte read all the, the big long novels, which I which I had a I thought was cool too. I did like right. hers. <laughs> right, hers were good, and, and actually a lot of the class was about Middlemarch by George Eliot. So it was funny, like most of it was about other authors, and then a little bit of Elizabeth Gaskell. Um, and then Charlotte Riddell was the third one I picked. I do, honestly don't know why I picked her. I guess maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't. I have no idea. So I went to the library and I got a whole bunch of their collections, and. Edith Wharton, to be honest, I, I had a very difficult time getting through. Her mm-hmm. this was sort of my own like stereotypical vision of that Victorian period where there, there was a you know, lot of no like no paragraph breaks and pages <laughs> of, of descriptions of, of things that didn't quite interest me. And I wanted to know more about the story and the characters, and it wasn't quite there for me. And Elizabeth Gaskell, um, although I really liked something called An Old Nurse's Story, it's a wonderful story, mm-hmm. I kind of felt the same way. I felt like it was this was a little long, a little, little difficult to get through. And then I got to Charlotte Riddell and I was like, whoa, this is this is my this is what I really <laughs> like right here. It was so different, in my opinion, yeah. from, from the other authors that I had been looking at. And to me, what made it different, it was very readable to me. Um, and there's, a, so for example, there's a lot of white space. You know, mm-hmm. she, if she were typing today, she would have been hitting the enter key a lot. <laughs> so she, it was great. And they're short, concise paragraphs. And most importantly, they move the story along. Yeah. I didn't feel like I was getting bogged down in any sort of detail or minutia about irrelevant information. Um, and the other thing I really liked about her was her dialogue. Um, she, now, not the story that we're going to talk about so much, but in a lot of her other stories, she has a lot of dialogue and it also moves the story along. It reveals the nature of the characters. It does exactly what, what good dialogue should do. Um, plus the fact that it's witty, it's engaging and, and often like fun and sarcastic. And like, I would laugh out loud at some of this stuff because she was, it was so like bitingly sarcastic and the characters, you know, that you just got a really good sense of who they were. 
And so that's, that's really, that's how I came to choose her and came to really like what she, she did and appreciate her work. That's great. So is the, is the project then all her or is it a collection of some others as well? Yeah, sorry. I kind of got bogged down in my love of No, no, no. Oh, no. no. But the project, yeah. So the project is, um, so there's, I don't know how many books will be in the series, but for example, Lisa Morton did one with Robert Chambers, Mm -hmm. King in Yellow. And Tom Monteleone wanted us to keep it to about 30, 35,000 words. So for me personally, that meant I could only choose four of her stories. And I think Lisa chose four of her stories as, or four of, of his stories as well. Like the four ones that kind of make up the King in yellow. Um, and I know, let's see, I know two others other than Lisa's, there's a little Brown book of unnatural narratives by Arthur Machin. I think, I don't know Mm -hmm. if I'm pronouncing that right. And then a little blue book of civil war heroes by Ambrose Bierce and um, Lawrence Connolly um, edited that one. So there will be more in the series. Again, I'm guessing probably a dozen or so. I'm not a hundred percent sure when mine's coming out, um, but mine's going to be a little purple book of sharp wit by Charlotte Riddell. That's oh, cool. Of it. I, I was going to ask the, what the of was for her. So of sharp wit. Okay, cool. I like it. Yeah. I like yeah. I just, I couldn't, I mean, it's all over the place with her and I, you know, I can't, I'm this, you know, I'm, I'm part Irish and I feel like, you know, there, there's an Irish tradition of this real dry, um, like dry wit sense of humor that comes, that really comes through with her. And I don't know if that's, you know, part of her, you know, her Irish heritage or just who she was as a person, but um, it really, it worked for me. That's cool. So, okay. For, so for this story, especially for an audience who may not know a whole lot about that period or um, what might you say about this story that are there things in it that people might need explained or some background or just things they might find odd, a modern audience? I, well, in terms of, of Charlotte Riddell, like, as I said before, this is one, you know, I, I kind of wax poetic about her dialogue, but there isn't a ton of dialogue in this one. Yeah. Um, however, I, you know, we're talking about accessibility. The, the paragraph breaks are many. Um, I think, like you said, it is punchy, it is uh, tight, and it's a it's a good read. Um, the, to me, I don't, I don't know what, how you feel about this. We kind of touched on it before, but the, the Christmas part, I think the, <laughs> I think the Christmas part was kind of her getting in on that whole let's tell a ghost story at Christmas time thing. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. to me, when I read this one, Yes, it takes place on Christmas Eve, but I don't know that that necessarily impacts the the story in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you remove the fact that it took place on Christmas Eve, I think the story still holds. I think it's still yeah. a good story. Um, it could have taken could have taken place on um, Halloween or you know February third or whatever, and it still would have been a solid good story. But I'm guessing that you know, maybe she, she was like, Hey, how can I market this better? <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Let me, let me add Christmas to it. But that, that's just a guess on my part. One thing I've found too, is that a lot of people will set their stuff on Christmas or Christmas Eve, just because for that audience, that's one of the sort of dark and stormy night things that just adds to the, the creepiness of it. That that's, that's the night when everything's supposed to be creepy. So if you set it there, then, which is totally different from how I think we see it. Like to us, that would be like Christmas Eve. Oh, it's all going to be cozy and familial. And but for them, that, that was like right. a marker. It was of, dark and cold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that, I mean, that, I, I don't know. I found it 
again, is not somebody who's a scholar of this time period. I, I found it easy to get through. I didn't, I wasn't asking a whole lot of questions like, what is that all about? You know, I felt yeah, like it was, yeah. it was very accessible. Yeah, no, that's that accessible is I think a good word for it. Do you know when this one, um, where, where it was originally published? Was it in a, in a periodical or I don't know. Cause I, that's one thing I tried to find and I couldn't, I couldn't really find anything about where it first came out. Unfortunately, no, I don't know that either. And again, it's, it's part, it's just, it's just hard to get that yeah. kind of detail about her. I think, yeah. you know, the, like the way I came across it through a collection on Amazon and a, only a couple other people have put her short stories into a collection. It's there, they are few and far between, you know, anything about her. So, you know, her novels and not novellas you can find, but, you know, just in terms of other stories of hers that I, I would, um, the collection that I'm working on for the little book series, like I said, only has four stories in it. And I chose my favorite, I think has to be the open door, mm-hmm. but the open door is a prime example of her and her dialogue. And it's just so on point and wonderful. And it, there's a lot of it in that story. Cool. And the open door to me has everything. It's kind of everything you kind of want in a horror story, I think even, um, let alone a ghost story, because it is it is a, a ghost and there's there's a lot of action in it, especially toward the end there. It gets violent, which I was surprised at because a lot of these things I find very tame or the, mm-hmm. the action kind of happens off scene where, you know, yeah. you hear about it, but you don't see it. But it was in right in real time. You're seeing what happens and he's tackling people and there's a gun and all this <laughs> stuff. And it's it's really exciting. It's a very exciting story. Um, I also included the Walnut Tree House, which again, with the great dialogue, it really made me kind of fall in love with the main character, whose name is Edgar Staten. Um, just so sarcastic and amazing. And um, but then the, the the ghost in that one is it isn't scary. It's more sweet than anything else. But there is a mystery, and it's it ties up really nicely. And then I included the Last Squire of Ennismore, which is super short short and sweet and very interesting and con Kilrea, which is to me kind of like um the irish christmas carol it's it it kind of has a lot of those beats in it and it's and it was it was cool oh that's fun i hadn't i didn't know that about that one okay that's that's the one i'm gonna go track down next great very cool and so you said you don't know exactly right now when your piece is going to come out that's right. Yeah, I know he's he's got a number. Tom has a number of people that he's that he's been working with, and they've been coming out. You know, every every couple of months, I think he's putting them out. But I don't know, I don't know where in the line I am. So gotcha. hopefully, I'm hoping in the next year or so. What else are you working on? What else can I point people towards for you? Well, my two most recent stories are actually online, so they would be easy to find. Um, One is it's something called 34orchard.com, which is a a great horror periodical. Um, And the name of the story is Because You're Mine, which is based on the song I Put a Spell on You by Nina Simone. And a second story I have is on a website called classicmonstersunleashed.com. And it's called Green with Hunger, and I get got to play around in the um, the Wizard of Oz uh, sandbox, and I was <laughs> talking about the Wicked Witch of the West there, and 
and kind of exploring what makes her so green. So um, those are that's those are my two re most recent. My other works you can find in in various anthologies, including Chiral Mad and Chiral Mad Three by Written Backwards, and then also um, Borderlands Seven. That's from Borderlands Press. And the story in Borderlands Seven is. Um, called Am I Missing the Sunlight? And that, that actually um, was up for the Stoker Award in short fiction last year. It was nominated. Did not win, but it was nominated. Oh, very cool. Congratulations. Thank you. All right. Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. I'm really glad she connected us. This, this was really wonderful. Thank you. And now it is time for our ghost story. And as always, this is my crowdsourced episode. I ask for volunteers to read every year. So if you're interested and want to do one in actually about six months or so, let me know. I started this one off because I want to have fun with reading too. So it's been long enough. Now let's hear A Strange Christmas Game by Charlotte Riddell. When through the death of a distant relative, I... John Lester, succeeded to the Martingdale estate, there could not have been found in the length and breadth of England a happier pair than myself and my only sister Clare. We were not such utter hypocrites as to affect sorrow for the loss of our kinsman, Paul Lester, a man whom we had never seen, of whom we had heard but little, and that little unfavorable, at whose hands we had never received a single benefit, who was, in short, as great a stranger to us as the then Prime Minister the Emperor of Russia, or any other human being utterly removed from our extremely humble sphere of life. His loss was very certainly our gain. His death represented to us not a dreary parting from one long-loved and highly honored, but the accession of lands, houses, consideration, wealth, to myself, John Lester, artist and second-floor lodger at 32 Great Smith Street, Bloomsbury. Not that Martingdale was much of an estate, as country properties go. The Lesters, who had succeeded to that domain from time to time during the course of a few hundred years, could by no stretch of courtesy have been called prudent men. In regard to their posterity, they were, indeed, scarcely honest, for they parted with manors and farms, with common rights and advowsons, in a manner at once so baronial and so unbusinesslike, that Martingdale at length in the hands of Jeremy Lester, the last resident owner, melted to a mere little dot in the map of Bedfordshire. Concerning this Jeremy Lester, there was a mystery. No man could say what had become of him. He was in the oak parlour at Martingdale one Christmas Eve, and before the next morning he had disappeared, to reappear in the flesh no more. Overnight, one Mr. Worley, a great friend and boon companion of Jeremy's, had sat playing cards with him until after twelve o'clock chimes. Then he took leave of his host and rode home under the moonlight. After that, no person, as far as could be ascertained, ever saw Jeremy Lester alive. His ways of life had not been either the most regular or the most respectable, and it was not until a new year had come in without any tidings of his whereabouts reaching the house that his servants became seriously alarmed concerning his absence. Then inquiries were set on foot concerning him, inquiries which grew more urgent as weeks and months passed by without the slightest clue being obtained as to his whereabouts. Rewards were offered, 
advertisements inserted, but still Jeremy made no sign. And so, in course of time, the heir at law, Paul Lester, took possession of the house and went down to spend the summer months at Martingdale with his rich wife and her four children by a first husband. Paul Lester was a barrister, an overworked barrister, who everyone supposed would be glad enough to leave the bar and settle at Martingdale, where his wife's money and the fortune he had accumulated could not have failed to give him a good standing even among the neighbouring country families. And perhaps it was with such intention that he went down into Bedfordshire. If this were so, however, he speedily changed his mind, for with the January snows he returned to London, let off the land surrounding the house, shut up the hall, put in a caretaker, and never troubled himself further about his ancestral seat. Time went on, and people began to say the house was haunted, that Paul Lester had seen something, and so forth, all which stories were duly repeated for our benefit when, forty-one years after the disappearance of Jeremy Lester, Claire and I went down to inspect our inheritance. I say our because Claire had stuck bravely to me in poverty, grinding poverty, and prosperity was not going to part us now. What was mine was hers, and that she knew, God bless her, without my needing to tell her so. The transition from rigid economy to comparative wealth was, in our case, the more delightful also, because we had not in the least degree anticipated it. We had never expected Paul Lester's shoes to come to us, and accordingly it was not upon our consciences that we ever, in our dreariest moods, wished him dead. Had he made a will, no doubt we never should have gone to Moddingdale, and I, consequently, never written this story. But, luckily for us, he died intestate, and the Bedfordshire property came to me. As for the fortune... He had spent it in travelling, and in giving great entertainments at his grand house in Portman Square. And concerning his effects, uh, Mrs. Lester and I came to a very amicable arrangement, and she did me the honour of inviting me to call upon her occasionally, and, as I heard, spoke of me as a very worthy and presentable young man for my station, which, of course, coming from so good an authority, was gratifying. Moreover, she asked me if I intended residing at Martingdale, and on my replying in the affirmative, hoped I should like it. It struck me at that time that there was a certain significance in her tone, and when I went down to Martingdale and heard the absurd stories which were afloat concerning the house being haunted, I felt confident that if Mrs. Lester had hoped much, she had feared more. People said Mr. Jeremy walked at Martingdale. He had been seen, it was averred, by poachers, by gamekeepers, by children who had come to use the park as a near cut to school, by lovers who kept their tryst under the elms and beeches. As for the caretaker and his wife, the third in residence since Jeremy Lester's disappearance, the man gravely shook his head when questioned, while the woman stated that wild horses, or even wealth untold, should not draw her into the red bedroom nor into the oak parlour after dark. I have heard my mother tell, sir. It was her as followed old Mrs. Reynolds, the first caretaker. How there were things went on in these selfsame rooms as might make any Christian's hair stand on end. Such stamping and swearing and knocking about on furniture, and then tramp, tramp up the great staircase, 
and along the corridor and so into the red bedroom, and then bang and tramp, tramp again. They do say, sir, Mr. Paul Lester met him once, and from that time the oak parlor has never been opened. I never was incited myself. Upon hearing which fact, the first thing I did was to proceed to the oak parlor, open the shutters, and let the August sun stream in upon the haunted chamber. It was an old-fashioned, plainly furnished apartment, with a large table in the center, a smaller in a recess by the fireplace, chairs ranged against the walls, and a dusty moth-eating carpet upon the floor. There were dogs on the hearth, broken and rusty. There was a brass fender, tarnished and battered. A picture of some sea fight over the mantelpiece, while another work of art, about equal in merit, hung between the windows. Altogether, an utterly prosaic and yet not uncheerful apartment, from out of which the ghosts flitted as soon as daylight was lit into it, and which I proposed, as soon as I felt my feet, to redecorate, refurnish, and convert into a pleasant morning room. I was still under thirty, but I had learned prudence in that very good school, necessity. And it was not my intention to spend much money until I had ascertained for certain what were the actual revenues derivable from the lands still belonging to the Martindale estates and the charges upon them. In fact, I wanted to know what I was worth before committing myself to any great extravagances, and the place had for so long been neglected that I experienced some difficulty in arriving at the state of my real income. But in the meanwhile, Claire and I found great enjoyment in exploring every nook and corner of our domain, and turning over the contents of old chests and cupboards, examining the faces of our ancestors, looking down on us from the walls, and walking through the neglected gardens full of weeds, overgrown with shrubs and birdweed, where the boxwood was eighteen feet high, the shoots of the rose trees yards long. I have put the place in order since then. There is no grass on the pass. There are no trailing brambles over the ground. The hedges have been cut and trimmed, and the trees pruned and the boxwood clipped. But I often say nowadays that in spite of all my improvements, or rather, in consequence of them, Martingdale does not look one half so pretty as it did in its pristine state of uncivilized picturesqueness. Though I determined not to commence repairing and decorating the house, till better informed concerning the rental of Martingdale, still the state of my finances were so far satisfactory that Claire and I decided on going abroad to take our long-talked-of holiday before the fine weather was past. We could not tell what a year might bring forth. As Claire sagely remarked, it was wise to take our pleasure while we could, and accordingly, before the end of August arrived, we were wandering around the continent, loitering at Rouen, visiting the galleries at Paris, and talking of extending our one month of enjoyment into three. What decided me on this course was the circumstance of our becoming acquainted with an English family who intended wintering in Rome. We met accidentally, but discovering that we were near neighbors in England. In fact, Mr. Cranston's property lay close beside Martingdale. The slight acquaintance soon ripened into intimacy, and ere long we were traveling in company. 
From the first, Claire did not much like this arrangement. There was a little girl in England she wanted me to marry, and Miss Cranston had a daughter who certainly was both handsome and attractive. The little girl had not despised John Lester, artist, while Miss Cranston indisputably set her cap at John Lester of Martindale and would have turned away her pretty little face from a poor man's admiring gaze. All this I can see plainly enough now, but I was blind then and should have proposed for Maybell, that was her name, before the winter was over, had news not suddenly arrived for the illness of Mrs. Cranston Sr. In the moment the program was changed, our pleasant days of foreign travel were at an end. The Cransons packed up and departed, while Claire and I returned more slowly to England, a little out of humor, it must be confessed, with each other. It was the middle of November when we arrived at Martingdale, and we found the place anything but romantic or pleasant. The walks were wet and sodden, the trees were leafless, there were no flowers save a few late pink roses blooming in the garden. It had been a wet season, and the place looked miserable. Claire would not ask Alice down to keep her company in the winter months as she had intended, and for myself, the Cronsons were still absent in Norfolk, where they meant to spend Christmas with old Mrs Cronson, now recovered. Altogether, Martingdale seemed dreary enough, and the ghost stories we had laughed at while sunshine flooded the rooms became less unreal when we had nothing but blazing fires and wax candles to dispel the gloom. They became more real also when servant after servant left us to seek situations elsewhere, when noises grew frequent in the house, when we ourselves, Claire and I, with our own ears, heard the tramp, tramp, the banging and the clattering which had been described to us. My dear reader, you are doubtless free from superstitious fancies. You poo-poo the existence of ghosts and only wish you could find a haunted house in which to spend a night, which is all very brave and praiseworthy. But wait till you are left in a dreary, desolate old country mansion filled with the most unaccountable sounds, without a servant, with no one save an old caretaker and his wife who, living at the extremist end of the building, heard nothing of the tramp, tramp, bang, bang, going on at all hours of the night. At first, I imagined the noises were produced by some evil-disposed persons who wished, for purposes of their own, to keep the house uninhabited. But by degrees, Claire and I came to the conclusion the visitation must be supernatural, and Martingdale, by consequence, untenantable. Still, being practical people and unlike our predecessors not having money to live where and how we liked, we decided to watch and see whether we could trace any human influence in the matter. If not, it was agreed we were to pull down the right wing of the house and the principal staircase. For night to night, we sat up till two or three o'clock in the morning, but just to test the matter... I determined on Christmas Eve, the anniversary of Mr. Jeremy Lester's disappearance, to keep watch by myself in the red bedchamber, 
Even to Claire, I never mentioned my intention. About ten, tired out with the previous vigils, we each retired to rest. Somewhat ostentatiously, perhaps, I noisily shut the door of my room. When I opened it half an hour afterwards, no mouse could have pursued its way along the corridor with greater silence and caution than myself. Quite in the dark I sat in the red room. For over an hour, I might as well have been in my grave for anything I could see in the apartment. But at the end of that time, the moon rose and cast strange lights across the floor and upon the wall of the haunted chamber. Hitherto I kept my watch opposite the window. Now I changed my place to a corner near the door, where I was shaded from observation by the heavy hangings of the bed and the antique wardrobe. Still I sat on, but still no sound broke the silence. I was weary with many nights watching, and tired of my solitary vigil. I dropped at last into a slumber from which I was awakened by hearing the door softly open. John, said my sister, almost in a whisper. John, are you here? Yes, Claire, I answered. But what are you doing up at this hour? Come downstairs, she replied. They are in the oak parlor. I did not need any explanation as to whom she meant, but crept downstairs after her, warned by an uplifted hand of the necessity for silence and caution. By the open door of the oak parlor, she paused, and we both looked in. There was the room we left in darkness overnight, with a bright wood fire blazing on the hearth, candles on the chimney piece, the small table pulled out from its accustomed corner, and two men seated beside it, playing at cribbage. We could see the face of the younger player. It was that of a man of about five and twenty, of a man who had lived hard and wickedly, who had wasted his substance and his health, who had been while in the flesh, Jeremy Lester. It would be difficult for me to say how I knew this, how in a moment I identified the features of the player with those of a man who had been missing for 41 years. 41 years that very night. He was dressed in the costume of a bygone period. His hair was powdered, and round his wrists there were ruffles of lace. He looked like one who, having come from some great party, had sat down after his return home, to play at cards with an intimate friend. On his little finger there sparkled a ring, in the front of his shirt there gleamed a valuable diamond. There were diamond buckles in his shoes, and according to the fashion of his time, he wore knee breeches and silk stockings, which showed off advantageously the shape of a remarkably good leg and ankle. He sat opposite to the door, but never once lifted his eyes to it, his attention seemed concentrated on the cards. For a time there was utter silence in the room, broken only by the monotonous counting of the game. In the doorway we stood, holding our breath, terrified, and yet fascinated by the scene which was being acted before us. The ashes dropped on the hearth softly and like the snow. 
you could hear the rustles of the cards as they were dealt out and fell upon the table. We listened to the count. 15-1, 15-2, and so forth. But there was no other word spoken till at length the player whose face we could not see exclaimed, I win, the game is mine. Then his opponent took up the cards, sorted them over negligently in his hand, put them close together, and flung the whole pack in his guest's face, exclaiming, Cheat! Liar! Take that! There was a bustle and a confusion, a flinging over of chairs and fierce gesticulation, and such a noise of passionate voices mingling that we could not hear a sentence which was uttered. All at once, however, Jeremy Lester strode out of the room in so great a hurry that he almost touched us where we stood. Out of the room, and tramp, tramp, up the staircase to the red room, whence he descended in a few minutes with a couple of rapiers under his arm. When he re-entered the room, he gave, as it seemed to us, the other man his choice of the weapons, and then he flung open the window, and after ceremoniously giving place to his opponent to pass out first, he walked forth into the night air, Claire and I following. We went through the garden, and down a narrow winding walk, to a smooth piece of turf, sheltered from the north by a plantation of young fir trees. It was a bright moonlit night by this time, and we could distinctly see Jeremy Lester measuring off the ground. "'When you say three, he said to the man, whose back was still toward us. They had drawn lots for the ground, and the lot had fallen against Mr. Lester. He stood thus, with the moonbeams falling full upon him, and a handsomer fellow I would never desire to behold. "'One,' began the other, two, and before our kinsman had the slightest suspicion of his design, he was upon him, and his rapier threw Jeremy Lester's breast.' At the sight of that cowardly treachery, Claire screamed aloud. In a moment the combatants had disappeared, the moon was obscured behind a cloud, and we were standing in the shadow of the fir plantation, shivering with cold and terror. But we knew at last what had become of the late owner of Martingdale, that he had fallen, not in fair fight, but foully murdered by a false friend. When, late on Christmas morning, I awoke, it was to see a white world, to behold the ground and trees and shrubs all laden and covered with snow. There was snow everywhere, such snow as no person could remember having fallen for forty-one years. It was on just such a Christmas as this that Mr. Jeremy disappeared, remarked the old sexton to my sister who had insisted on dragging me through the snow to church, whereupon Claire fainted away and was carried into the vestry, where I made a full confession to the vicar of all we had beheld the previous night. At first, that worthy individual rather inclined to treat the matter lightly, but when a fortnight after the snow melted away and the fir plantation came to be examined, he confessed there might be more things in heaven and earth than his limited philosophy had dreamed of. In a little clear space just within the plantation, Jeremy Lester's body was found. We knew it by the ring and the diamond buckles and the sparkling breastpin and Mr. Cronson, who in his capacity as magistrate came over to inspect these relics, 
was visibly perturbed at my narrative. Pray, Mr. Lester, did you in your dream see the face of... of the gentleman, your kinsman's opponent? No, I answered. He sat and stood with his back to us all the time. There is nothing more, of course, to be done in the matter, observed Mr. Cronson. Nothing, I replied, and there the affair would doubtless have terminated. But that a few days afterwards, when we were dining at Cronson Park, Claire all of a sudden dropped the glass of water she was carrying to her lips and exclaiming, Look, John, there he is, rose from her seat, and with a face as white as the tablecloth, pointed to a portrait hanging on the wall. I saw him for an instant when he turned his head towards the door as Jeremy Lester left it, she exclaimed. That is he. Of what followed after this identification, I have only the vaguest recollection. Servants rushed hither and thither. Mrs. Cronson dropped off her chair in hysterics. The young ladies gathered round their mamma. Mr. Cronson, trembling like one in an ague fit, attempted some kind of explanation, while Claire kept praying to be taken away, only to be taken away. I took her away, not merely from Cronson Park, but from Martingdale. Before we left the latter place, however, I had an interview with Mr. Cronson, who said that the portrait Claire had identified was that of his wife's father, the last person who saw Jeremy Lester alive. He is an old man now, finished Mr. Cronson, a man of over eighty who has confessed everything to me. You won't bring further sorrow and disgrace upon us by making this matter public. I promised him I would keep silence, but the story gradually oozed out, and the Cronsons left the country. My sister never returned to Martingdale. She married and is living in London. Though I assure her there are no strange noises now in my house, she will not visit Bedfordshire, where the little girl she wanted me so long ago to think seriously of is now my wife and the mother of my children. Thanks to everyone who volunteered this year. Links to their social media is all up on weirdchristmas.com in the show notes. But I'd like to give a quick shout out to Tessa, Dustin Perry, Ileana Reyes, Charles Gillingham, that guy, Jenny Rowe, Tony Dixon, Seb, I assume he has a real name, Tim Hulsizer, Amy, and Jessamy Thomason. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, if you like the show and want to support it, especially if you want to support the story contest, please head over to patreon.com or ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas, ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. 
I will be honest, I'm probably going to phase out the Patreon subscriptions because I just don't have time to keep up with much in the off season. And while I am so overwhelmingly grateful to everyone there who says they don't mind and just want to help out, I do feel a bit cheaty. But I also need to keep the story contest going, so I'll see what I can come up with in terms of other ways you might be able to donate. But for now, even a small little donation over at ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas, that'll keep the pot for the story rewards building and also just make me love, love, love you all even more. So, until things get a little cooler and summer is a mere memory and a vague threat, don't let Santa stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack. We'll have holidays by the beach. We'll learn to love Christmas in the It's not like it's the same as I was told Cause it's almost always raining And it never really snows We'll have Christmas in July When the temperature's below five And the sunset's quarter past three Batch of mulled wine and get wrecked down by fire Fill the house with joy and Christmas trees Just move back home with me Just move back home